Hey, and welcome to the Badger Talks podcast, the podcast which interviews experts from the University of Wisconsin-Madison community about their work, programs, and research, and what they are like as people, too. I'm your host, Ben Rush. Listening to this podcast will also give you a sneak peek of an upcoming longer talk by each guest. Our guest today, Shireen Sherrod Johnson, will be giving a talk called Creativity in Crisis, the Practice of Poetry on July 27th at noon central time virtually. A link to the virtual talk as well as past and upcoming talks is in the show notes. For now, let's dive into the interview with Shireen Sherrod Johnson. As our inaugural podcast episode, we will start with a little bit about you. So could you please tell us your names and pronouns that you prefer? Okay. Uh, my name is Shireen Sherard Johnson. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And could you please describe a physical description of yourself? Uh, let's see. Uh, lots of mediums. I am identify as African-American woman, uh, cisgender. I have um, medium brown skin, dark brown hair that's fairly curly, and I'm also medium height. And I'm wearing, uh, it's a nice day, so I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for sharing. I'm doing the exact same thing. And could you please provide the roles that you do on UW-Madison's campus? Sure. So I am, it's a, so it's a mouthful, but my full title is the Sally Mead Hans Bascom Professor of English. And I am also currently the Director of Graduate Studies. So even though it's summer I'm, and I'm transitioning, those are still my titles. All right. I'm going to ask you the toughest question, I think. In a few sentences, how would you describe your work to your family? Oh, let's see. Well, you know, I do see myself, I, I guess, as a writer and a teacher first. So often when I talk about my expert or areas or fields of expertise, I mean, those areas are African-American, Caribbean uh, literature, um, primarily visual culture, working in the light late 19th, early 20th century. So that's the more professional or, or field description. But I often just tell my family, you know, I'm a writer and a teacher and a researcher and a scholar. And I produce um, scholarship, but I also produce art since I work in a lot of different genres. Right. And that's exactly why I was so excited about the interview, too. It's you're going back and forth between volumes of poetry biographies of individuals and fusing those two. So I'm very excited to have you on here. Do you think your work has changed your life? I think that, you know, I see myself as a, you know, a lifelong learner. And so, you know, over the arc of my career, you know, that, you know, I've honed my craft in these various different forms, both of writing and, and creativity. And so, I do believe it has been transformative in that way. Um, I'm always, even as a young child, I was very interested in in writing. So there's a real consistency for me as a, a writer and as a reader in that regard. Um, so I just think it's been, you know, a, a layering over time. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have a specific intention that you want 
your work to have on the people in Wisconsin? I think the impact that I I hope any audience um, gets from my work is that they learn something and maybe open themselves up to something that they were unfamiliar with. It can possibly be uncomfortable, um, but also um, pleasurable. That's that's often you know my hope, especially with with poetry. I'm often trying to manage or or, or gear a response from those um, those different planes. So I would say you know educate. Um, but again, also entertain. And so that would be a goal for me for really anyone coming to that work. Um, from Wisconsin in particular, I think, you know, this is a space that has became my home, but I, you know, I'm originally from California. So um, it's been in the 20 years that I've been here, it's been a real discovery getting to know a different space and, and figuring out how to feel at home and a place that you're not from. Yeah, I am really curious about your your life journey, and we don't have too much time to get into it. Um, but was your transition from California to Wisconsin uh, challenging in any sort of way for you, or was it a relatively easy transition? The weather was a, an adjustment. Um, I went to graduate school in the um, in upstate New York, so I did have some familiarity with the cold before I came here. So it wasn't a direct, you know, Los Angeles <laughs> directly to, to Madison. So there was some interim um, there. The way that people seem to just hibernate here and nest um, for those long months, that took some getting used to. Um, and then in contrast, then the way that, you know, in the summers and when the weather is nice, how everyone really just comes out and and, ex- and really explores and does as much as they can to soak up um, the weather. So I think getting to experience those rhythms of the seasons was something that it took me some time to adjust to. I think culturally, this is very different, you know, in terms of the ethnic makeup of the community. Um, it is a college town. And so that brings a certain level of diversity to the space in some way, but, you know, very different. And that this is a much more heterogeneous population that I was used to. Right. And has that changed during your 20 years in Wisconsin? Somewhat. I mean, I think, you know, there's two things. There's Madison, the town, and then there's UW, the campus. And I've definitely seen the campus itself become um, more diverse over the time that I'm here. The faculty, there are many more faculty of color, and this number of students of color has grown over time. So I definitely see some changes there. Um, I wouldn't say that they are um, dramatic, uh, but definitely an, an increase um, there that has been positive. Um, and the community, you know, at large, I, I used to always joke that in, in the summer, Madison looked much more diverse in some way, because the student population would leave and then you could kind of see and experience other communities, you know, coming onto the terrace and into the farmer's market and into those spaces where um, before would be predominantly um, dominated by the students. Um, so I, I felt like that was always a time to see a different side of Madison. And I think that reflects a little bit of your current work, too, where you are showcasing the African-American experience of women and and your experience, too, as a mother um, in your new collection of poems, Grimoire. I really enjoyed the concept of this uh, collection, and I was wondering if you could just enlighten our audience about how you came up with this idea. Sure. Uh, This book really for me, represents a synergy between my interests in research and then creativity. Um, I came across what is 
probably, or what we believe, is the first known cookbook written by an African-American woman. Um, And it was written by a woman named Melinda Russell. And it was self-published out of Michigan. And she published this book as a way of supporting um, herself and her young son. So she was, at that time, a a widow, a single mother. And she published a cookbook um, entitled A Domestic Cookbook, containing a careful selection of useful receipts for the kitchen in 1866. And when I discovered this volume, I just loved reading the recipes and I was just, you know, fascinated and really, I really admired the courage that it took to produce a book like this um, for a woman of color, a free woman of color, uh, really in the middle of the civil war. Um, And so that sparked an interest in thinking, you know, how can I, what can I do to, you know, imagine or to fill in the gaps in this woman's background, because we know very little about her. Um, And it also, it struck me that poems and recipes share some similarities. And so I thought a book of poems would be a great way to, to engage and to explore and to maybe bring to life um, the recipes in the book. Yeah. And you also did a cooking along almost of some of these recipes, correct? I did. I mean, so part of that was just my way of, um, again, not knowing that much about um, Melinda Russell's biography. So I thought, well, you know, recipes are almost like telegrams, you know, from the past, you know, they communicate the set of knowledge or instructions that can create Um, maybe not the exact same thing, but something similar. And so there's this way in which um, they're a passing down of ancestral knowledge. And so by cooking the recipes, I felt like I could, um, this gets a little new agey, but that I could commune in some way with Melinda Russell, right? Um, Through making the recipes that she uh, recorded. One of my favorite things to do is find a grocery list in the grocery store on the floor and just read it. It's like, it's just a small glimpse into someone's life and you can resonate with them with a little bit. It's like, I am also buying canned beans at this moment. You know, (laughs) I could probably have a conversation and relate to this person. As someone who's sometimes intimidated by poetry, do you have any recommendations for a place to start within your works? Um, Sure. Well, I think that the, um, maybe the third poem, um, which is a, a recipe poem called Marble Cake is a good one because I think in some ways it's very direct in terms of, you know, this looks like how a recipe, you know, you would be familiar to you, but then it's in verse. And it's one of those poems that I think you can start on the surface and then dig deeper. Um, and the meaning is you know revealed, I think, the more that you uh, read it or hear it. Um, poetry really is an art that needs excavation, but I think at every level there is something to be found. Did you also, to fill in the gaps of uh, Melinda Russell's story, connect with your current life? Yeah, well, you know, I began writing, you know, thinking about, you know, how can I capture some aspect of, of who she was And the more that I learned about her, the more the idea of a Black woman uh, attempting to mother a child in a very precarious um, situation, the more that that resonated with me. I have two boys and I have have raised them um, in, you know, Madison, um, 
for the entirety of their lives with a few detours where we went on sabbatical and back to California here and there for a year. And I began to write about that experience as well, but also to think about not just my own personal experience with um, mothering while Black, but also thinking about the birth outcomes of other women of color, both in the Madison area, but much more broadly. And so um, while the first section of Grimoire focuses much more on that historical imagination and engaging of the recipes, the second part deals much more directly with the processes of birth, um, endangerment, um, infant mortality, and really the the dramatic differences in terms of life uh, outcomes for Black children. When I was doing research, I read this article um, by Linda Villarosa, which she wrote for the New York Times Magazine. And she wrote that Black infants in America are now more than twice as likely to die as white infants, 11.3 per 1,000 Black babies, compared with 4.9 per 1,000 white babies. And that was the government data that she drew upon. But what was really striking to me about that data was that it was a disparity that was actually wider than it was in 1850 when Black women were enslaved and forced to produce children under um, those circumstances. So the idea that the birth outcome from a Black woman now could be worse than it was when she was enslaved um, was... You know, that I'm yes, I'm sure it'd be surprising for people in Wisconsin, but it was surprising to me. And um, trying to uncover some of the reasons for that and understanding also what kinds of care or uh, policies could remedy um, such a gap were was also part of the motive, I think, behind writing this book. I'm glad we can use this podcast as a medium to get, you know, share both your works and also this, you know, these really staggering statistics that should not exist. I am going to shift gears to our ending question. Just to get to know you a little bit more, what do you do after you work? Well, so pre-COVID or post- <laughs> post-COVID? Um, yeah. It's a see. tricky question. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, you know, I do like to to bake and to cook. I think so that part, you know, of the, the process with the book was, was already there at present. Um, I'm also a knitter. That's something that I, uh, it's a hobby I took up here in Wisconsin. I knew, I learned as a young, a young girl. And then of course I put it away for many years and I took it up here. We have some really beautiful uh, craft stores in, in Madison. And so, you know, with the cold weather, you, you know, there's, I, I have an unending supply of, of hats and socks <laughs> um, that I, that I do. If you need someone to ever eat your baked goods, uh, please let me know. Um, okay. <laughs> I've got an endless stomach. So, well, Shireen, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your time. I've certainly enjoyed mine. And thank you for also giving your Badger Talks live in the future. Okay. Thank you. I hope people turn in. Thanks for listening to the Badger Talks podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And if you want to catch more of Shireen Sherrod Johnson, Check out her talk on July 27th at noon Central Time. The link to her upcoming talk and talks by other University of Wisconsin-Madison experts is in the show notes. Until next time, be well. Badger Talks podcast is a creation by the University of Wisconsin-Madison and by Deeper Than Data Media. The podcast is produced by Deeper Than Data Media.